Welcome to Listeners of History, the podcast about, oh my God. <laughs> what is it about? <laughs> about interesting people you probably didn't learn about in school. I'm Faga, and I am a laryngitis monster. I'm Isa, and I am a post- you know, like I don't always like like I am a I am a a post depressing thing I've been studying recently. Puddle, I'm a little Aww. down in the dumps. <laughs> I am like well, a little bit of a puddle. I'm gonna be kind of like like tucking myself in tonight, just being like, it's okay, Isa, it's okay. Yeah, yeah. Cuddle, cuddle, Pikachu. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So we're we're feeling mellow today, y'all. We're yeah. we're <laughs> this is a mellow. It's a mellow day. Yeah, it's it's been um, a month in my household of yeah. one or the other of us being sick. I had this idea that while you were in Europe, I was going to get so ahead of all my reading. Uh huh. And then I got sick for two weeks, and then Mizal got sick for two weeks. No. <laughs> oh my goodness. Uh, so here we are. Yeah. Um, here we are, and it's but here be we great. are, and we're we're forging on as yes. always. And we're going to talk about a guy who I didn't realize, like, was – so there's this really weird building in Philly mm-hmm. um, on Market Street. And I've always looked at him and, like, what is the deal with that building? So I used to teach um, music at a charter school that was, like, on the second floor of the the Marshalls. Um, oh, my Market gosh. Street. Okay. Yes. Yeah. And um, I just it, – it's right next to the buildings right there. And I was always like, why is that building like that? And anytime I ask people who might know, they'd go, oh, it's the old Robinsons. And I'm like, that tells me nothing. Like, <laughs> like why is it look why is it like, like a wait, tsunami? What's the, what is the – oh, the one that's like – like yes. that? Yeah. Yeah. It's really intense for no re- – it's like <laughs> yeah. who said anything? Like, you know, like, okay. Yeah, that's yeah, it's, it's very much it's it's what, what what's that meme? It's like you know no one. Yeah, that's what no one. That, colon. This building, this yeah. building up here. So wait, did the subject of our podcast today design that building? Yes, he did. No way. We have a yes. very our very own. Can I announce his name? Yes. Drumroll, drumroll, Victor Gruen. Yes. Here is right here in in Philadelphia, right here in River City. Yeah, right here in River City. And it's actually been really great because I've had several tours that have gone on that stretch lately. And that stretch I've always found really challenging with tours Uh because there's not that much to talk about. But now I can talk about Victor Gruen and it's great. Yeah, awesome. The people I had today were like really excited about it, uh, which is great, especially because I wasn't expecting to give a tour. 
my tour guide was sick. Oh and my gosh. So I had to do last minute 9 a.m. tour. Oh my goodness. And Victor Gruen saved the day because everybody Victor loves Gruen. Victor Gruen. Yes, we do. <laughs> uh, so Victor Gruen, our buddy, he was born born at Victor with like a K. Like he like if you Google him, it's it's Victor, like like the anglicized Victor okay. with a C. But oh, but it was originally a K. It was originally a K. Okay. So Victor David Gruenbaum. Okay. On July 18th, 1903, to a middle-class Jewish family in Vietnam. <gasps> he was one of ours? Yes. I didn't know. I know, I right? I know. I know he's one of Okay. All right. Cool. Cool, cool, cool. There's a reason you didn't know that. Oh, yeah. Because so, he didn't want me to. Uh, I mean, when's <laughs> no? that far, but okay. we'll, we'll get right. there. Okay, 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 okay. So... Middle class Jewish family in Vienna. So at the time, this is before World War One. This was actually a really good time to be a Viennese Jew. Oh, this is the best time to be a Viennese Jew. Yeah, like there's this like feeling of possibility yeah. and freedom, and like yeah, this this idea that oh well, you know, we you know we're starting you know the Austro-Hungarian Empire. We only care about like business and stuff you can be whoever yeah. as long as you're like making money which was like right a freeing thing right for jewish families who were blessed to have right. businesses and things right like that. so it was definitely yeah it, this is a really fascinating time in austrian history because in austrian jewish history and jewish history in general because yeah it's I have a book about the viennese jews and it's called something it's like a little bit of a it's it's definitely a like a mind fuck because it's called like the tragedy of success because this is what because obviously what happens is Viennese Jews were some of the most successful business people and of course like you know people were like got they got blamed for all this shit and then you know as, suffered some pretty bad happens. consequences but um but yeah and then of course you have tons of different types of like there are tons of different Jews in Vienna there's also like the Hasidim who don't want to yeah. assimilate and there's lots of that's anyway, not Victor. All, not that <laughs> clearly, clearly, clearly not Victor. Um, yes. um yeah. very also, interesting. I time. also I saw a show on Broadway recently called Leopold Shot that just reminded like is, oh. is about this era. And so I was like, oh yeah. well that's helpful. Um so he studied architecture at the Vienna Academy of Fine Arts. Cool. I couldn't find if he finished or not. Um, which makes me think he did it. Which means but, he's better at architecture than Hitler. That's true. <laughs> that is true. Yes. <laughs> better because yeah, people oh, people know about the art one. People don't know about the architecture one. He failed at that too. Yes, so, he did. Yeah. <laughs> um, in 1918, his father died, uh, so that brought Victor home to his family, mm. and at mm. that same time, the uh, Austro-Hungarian Empire fell, so all of that like safety and prosperity just down the drain. Yeah, for Viennese Jews, yeah, uh, things became very uncertain for them, and him in particular because his father just died, and architecture mm. became like a practical thing for him. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, he, you know, got was able to work for a family friend. Um, but what he really threw himself into were his socialist political activities because he was mega socialist. Wow. 
he performed in political coffee houses doing like vaudevillian stuff. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> I keep looking That's at amazing. that picture of him. I keep looking at that famous picture of him. And be like, this man did vaudeville, uh, not actual so vaudeville, funny. but like that style. Yeah. Um, oh, that's so funny. It's a mix of music, slapstick, social critique, and drama. Wow. <laughs> that's and amazing. He worked with a theater group called uh, Politicis Cabaret. Yep. Wow. Um, which was a theater group dedicated to overtly political and controversial one-act skits. Wow. And so I wonder if that's connected to, like, today's Berlin Cabaret and stuff i'm what it oh, probably because it's this it's this type of comedy that you can go that happens in berlin but you won't apparently you won't get it unless you're like deeply knowledgeable or at least like quite familiar with berlin and german politics because it's all extremely specific to like the politics but it's all like comedy um and it's called yeah, cabaret I yeah i mean it um, might be because it, this was kind of a big deal it sounds like like people yeah. knew them he saw his socialism and his theater work as like inexorably linked. Like these, as you do, as one these does, were not <laughs> separate in any way. Yeah, which yeah. Um, is it's just lovely because, of course, this is like art and democracy. This is like, of course, of course. I had no idea he was a theater kid. That's so fun. Yeah, he saw himself as a socialist first, then as Viennese. And then a very, very distant third, a Jew. So <laughs> that's that's why you didn't know he was Jewish. Because yeah. to him, it wasn't that important. Yeah, he, um, was, I have a, he was on yeah. that assimilation train. I get it. I get it. Oh, 100%. He, yeah, he was. there's a new book out called Jews in Suits. And I really want to read it. Um, it's such a good about, title. It's such a good title. The book cover is gorgeous. Um uh, two very dashing men, of course, in suits, Jews in suits. Um, and it's about this era in like Austria and Jews wearing suits. Um, it's all like original research. I'm it's unfortunately a little prohibitively expensive, it seems like. So I all the good books are. Oh gosh. It's an it's supposed to be an academic book, so it's like Yep. $150 or something like that, which is like Oh, that's really bad. Uh, oh, it's crazy. I'm gonna I just rejected a book about the streets of Philadelphia um, and how they were laid out and the naming and the parks uh-huh. and stuff that I really, really want. Yeah. But it is the cheapest I could find. It was $40. <sighs> that sucks. And I was like, uh, I don't $40 want this. No, book. it's as it's like, you know, it's always like those really thin ones. It's like, it's just because there's not very many of them out there that yep. people can charge $40. And like, I've bought a, I've bought a book like that where it's like, oh, I, yeah. why did I pay $40? This thin ass book. <laughs> No, I have a few books like that that yeah. I felt I needed to buy. Um, yeah. But at any rate, I have a great quote from from Gruen describing himself that just I feel like really can put us in, in his mindset in life. So he defined himself as adorer of the female, socialist, humanist, environmentalist, architect, businessman, philosopher. Great LinkedIn bio. Yeah, or... Yeah. Redditor or, um, or Tinder? Did it say? <laughs> did it say adorer of the female? Yes, yes. That was that was his number one most important defining wow. characteristic of himself. Amazing, amazing. He was married four times. <laughs> oh, okay, all right, okay, all right, Victor. Okay. <laughs> yep. 
So like I said, he had a day job um, with a family friend. Actually, his godfather. I got that wrong. Mm-hmm. His godfather's architectural and construction firm, uh, Melcher and Steiner. Okay. Um, but he found it super boring. And, you know, he just wants to be a theater kid, you know? Yeah. But then March 12th, 1938, the Anschluss happens. So uh, this is mm-hmm. the annexation of Austria by Nazi Germany. Mm-hmm. And he was completely blindsided by it. Mm. Which is interesting for someone who was like politically active. Mm-hmm. I don't know a whole lot about. I mean, I know about that era in that way that like I am a Jew from South Jersey, and so mm-hmm. like we studied it like a lot. Yeah, but I haven't done like real research on it. If uh-huh. that makes sense. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. And so it, but it seems odd to me that he would have just no idea. But apparently, he was completely by- blindsided by it. Yeah. Um, his car was confiscated. He was sent wow. to prison. Um, but he still didn't want to leave Vienna. Huh. He loved Vienna. He didn't want to leave. Yeah. He burned all the evidence of his socialist activities. And yeah. his theater friends and him all vowed that they would meet and do theater again if they managed to escape. Uh, and they all mailed scripts of their work Aww. to allies around the world. I know, right? <laughs> so, Don't worry, it gets happier. <laughs> I know, I know. I'm just, oh my goodness. That's so, that's wonderful. They were, they loved each other. Yes, they did. Yeah. Um, he was married to a woman named Alice uh, Cardos, who went by Lizzie. Mm-hmm. And she was the one who was like, okay, okay, Victor, we need to leave. Yeah. Like, somebody always has to say it. <laughs> somebody always has to be that person. It's time to yes. flee. It's time to flee. Yeah. yeah. And by that point, you couldn't just go. Right. So um, they found a sponsor actually through an actor friend in New York. So this woman, Ruth York, they met her on a train uh-huh. and became friends as part of the Vienna theater scene. And she had moved back to her native New York and they contacted her and she found somebody to act as a financial sponsor for Gruen's family. And it took their entire savings to pay the tax to be permitted to leave Austria. Yep. That's how they did it. They arrived in New York. I loved this. This is what he he said about this. This isn't a quote, Mm -hmm. but like this is based on his talking about this. Um, He arrived in New York speaking no English, Mm -hmm. almost no money, some of his socialist plays, and a Viennese (laughs) T-square. Incredible start. Incredible start. Tragically without, you know, his life savings. But um, Yeah, he had like $8, if I remember correctly. Oh, my gosh. Um, Jesus Christ. Yeah. Yeah. But he was out. um, And he had a skill that was in demand. Yeah. When he was on the boat, somebody said to him, listen, a lot of, like, refugee Jews, they're trying to get jobs as, like, Mm. dishwashers and stuff because, you know, they don't know the language and they don't know what to do. But, Mm -hmm. like, America needs architects. Huh. So, like, just go for it. Like, you'll figure the language thing out. Yeah. Don't don't go for the lower rung stuff. Like, just be an architect. Yeah. And it worked out. So, he found work as a draftsman for two design firms. Which he had a big part then with them designing uh, the 1939 World's Fair in Queens. All right. And uh, he helped make the General Motors Futurama display, which I don't know if you're familiar with this. I think you can still see it in Epcot, like at Disney, but yeah. it's a realistic model of a new future American city. And it's fascinating because it's what 
1939, General Motors or whatever thought was going to be the American city. Right. And so he was a part of building that, which is cool. Yeah. I don't think he was like the idea man behind it, but he helped build yeah. it. He tried to get back huh. into theater. Not a lot of success there. There was a, a lot. Most, I, I think all of his theater company escaped to New York, which is wow. lovely. Um, wow. Certainly most of them. And so they tried to get some interest in their political theater. But unfortunately, the only interest that was there was the fact that they were refugee Jews from Europe and not mm. what they were actually saying. So like mm. they had a brief run on Broadway, but when they tried to like do anything that wasn't just like, here's some of the stuff we did in Europe, people didn't care. <sighs> That's too bad. Yeah, yeah it's really it a bummer. So it's kind of like people were just kind of exoticizing them and then didn't care about the things they were actually saying. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly it. <laughs> yeah. Yikes. Which is a bummer. Yeah. In the U.S. at the time, architecture was a gentleman's profession. And oh, I think yes. a lot of ways still is. Oh, yeah. It definitely is. And so a lot of architects were too too good to be doing practical things like mm. retail architecture. Of course, of course, of Because, course. you know, they're making those weird, like, I don't want to call somebody out when I don't know that much about architects. No, do but, it. Like, do it. The Guggenheim. It. Yeah. No, that's, yeah, do it. Do <laughs> like, it. Call weird them ass out. buildings like that. Like your weird ass buildings right. that nobody actually likes. Yeah. <laughs> Except for um, architects. They make them for each other, press each other, impress each other. I obviously hate most architecture not all modern architecture or contemporary architecture but i do hate most of it yeah for this so reason. yeah there's that um, someone's gonna call me a, like a, a neo-traditionalist fascist <laughs> for saying that they people always are like you're such a fascist because you're saying that i'm like no i just don't like it um Listen, we all have preferences we can, <laughs> we can. <sighs> um i talk bad about new international style Every single day. Uh-huh. Because yeah. we yeah. go by the Lowe's Hotel. And Ugh. I tell everyone on every bus how much I hate the architecture of that building. What's the hotel called? The Lowe's Hotel. It's L-O- at um, L-O-E-W-S. Oh. Um, it's across from Reading Terminal Market. Like, it's a 12th oh. and Market. Oh. But it's, it's, an, it's the old um, PSFS building oh i hate that building too i know right it's, it's awful it's and so it's like ugly. i have to point it out because it's like the first of that architectural style in philadelphia and it's like i can't we have so many better buildings <sighs> we, we have do. so many better buildings we have some incredibly we, gorgeous buildings and that is just literally two honk. blocks away I, I like the letters on top. I, I think they're cute. They add a little interest to the, but this, but it's not PFSF, whatever it is anymore. So no, yeah, it's it's just those are just there. They tried to take the sign down, and Philadelphians revolted. It's kind of oh funny. yeah. I mean that's the only good thing about it. We'd have to knock down the rest of the building too. I know, right? So at any rate, these these architects too good for retail, of course. Victor Gruen. Not good, too good for retail. Uh huh. Um, not saying he was humble. He was not. <laughs> um, definitely not. Uh-huh. Uh, but in Vienna, architecture firms didn't see retail as like a low class thing. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. So he didn't have that like predisposition to look down on it. So 
he he actually had done some retail design before he left Vienna. So he was positioned to be an expert in this newly emerging field in the United States. Right. So after his work in the World's Fair, I love this. God, this man. Uh, uh-huh. So he finishes his work at the World's Fair. He's unemployed and he decides he's just going to window shop at Fifth on Fifth Avenue in New York. Awesome. Awesome. And he runs, this is crazy. He runs into Lu- uh, Ludwig Lederer, who was okay. an acquaintance of his from Vienna. And Lederer was opening a high-end leather goods store. And he hired Victor on the spot to design it. Wow. <laughs> oh, my goodness. He's just like, you're from Vienna? I'm from Vienna. We met like that one time at that cocktail party. You want to ah! design my like Fifth Avenue store? <laughs> Sure, why not? <laughs> it's who you know, not what you know. It's yeah, it's, it I mean, there you go. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> the problem was uh Gruen didn't have an architectural license in the United States. But uh-huh. not actually that big of a deal. He paired up with a guy named Morris Ketchum. Like and I can't get over those last names Ketchum like because like, like ketchup Ketchum. but with an M. No, no, like Ash Ketchum from Pokemon. That blank stare is killing me. My cat's name is Pikachu, and I know nothing of of the of the world that he comes from. I know I don't nothing know very much his, about Pokemon, <laughs> but I know the protagonist is named Ash Ketchum. Oh, like catch them all. Oh, that's oh, catch them all, catch all those licenses. Yeah, Pikachu yeah. came uh, pre-named. He came pre-named, and it felt like the perfect name for him. Uh, so it it's it stuck. Um, well, I was I was deeply amused when I saw this man's name. So this guy Morris <laughs> Ketchum uh, grew and met him when he was working on the World's Fair. He had an architectural license, so they paired up. They didn't work together long, but the work that they did together really launched both of their careers. Okay, and they did they created a really uh, big design innovation. So I said this before we got on here that I'm going to not talk too much about like the actual architecture itself in part because it seems silly to do to, to explain architecture to you when I don't know jack about architecture. Um, oh, I'm, neither I'm do that- I. I don't know anything about architecture. I just guess as I guess as I go on. You know, listen, you know more than I do. Like I, <laughs> I joke and this, I say it's a joke, but it's true. I tell tour guides – that, you know, I go around the city and I'm like, oh, Independence Hall, that's right. Georgian style. Right, Congress right. Hall is federal style. And you know how I know that? I memorized it. Yes. Because I cannot tell you why one is the other. Okay. <laughs> like- but honestly, I have tried. This is my secret. This is my dirty little secret because I've given, I've fully given a tour of Old City. I cannot, if you showed me a Georgian style building and a federal style building, th- specifically those two. I cannot well, tell the difference. Well, those two also I cannot are tell the difference. really similar. They're the same. They're not the same. But they are almost basically the same. It has something same. to do with, like, how their windows are placed. It like, has something to do with the windows, and I don't get it. I don't do get I. it. I read it, like, four times. <laughs> All I, I know like, is that I they're both – They're both very simple, Puritan, Protestant, like, symmetry. simple, symmetry, have symmetry, you know, that's appearance. it. But like, I'm not, I, get me, get, get me to the Italianate, the Grecian, the Egyptian revival, and I'm good. And then we can get, we can go on from there. So because there's, we just yeah. put you in the Masonic temple and say, have fun. Oh, I had, oh, I've had so much fun in the Masonic temple. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I They've did. I did. Everything. I took a tour there. It's, it's me incredible. Too. 
it's, it's really cool. I highly recommend everybody take a tour of the Masonic Temple and, you know, go in with whatever feelings you have, come out with whatever feelings you have. It's going to be weird. And it's, it's exactly as weird as you think it's going to be. And that's what's great about it. <laughs> um, I When I took the tour, it was years ago. And it was during the popularity of, like, the Da Vinci Code. Oh, my God. And, and when you go on a tour of the Masonic Temple, it's a mason that takes you through. Yeah, yeah. And this guy on the group, in the group was just, like, trying so hard. <laughs> To get this Mason to be like, yep, we're taking over the world. Oh, that's <laughs> too funny. That is to so the funny. point where it was like deeply annoying. Because oh was, my like, gosh, well, bro. yeah, there's 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 certain like theories that border that like are not. They're basically interlinked with like these anti-Semitic conspiracy theories for the same oh, yes. fucking reasons. But the thing is, like, the funniest thing is, like, yes, there's some very powerful Masons, but like most Masons were like my grandpa, who was just like this crazy old Romanian man who just like they get together and drink and they get together outfits. and they drink and they wear weird clothes and sometimes some i mean it's it's you know they're just weirdos but there's mostly they're just places where men can bond together and it actually yes. is most of the time pretty sweet and um mm-hmm. and i know good. multiple masons and they <laughs> yeah. are not taking i can tell you those people are not taking over the world uh, yeah. for a variety of reasons <laughs> um i've known a lot of masons over my time yes Okay, so anyway, design innovations. Uh, so Ketchum and Gruen invent, well, not invent, it's the wrong word, but they like popularized this concept of the arcade. So they designed Ciro and Letters, of course, on Fifth Avenue. And what they did was they really created this, like, they, they, they made the sort of entry into the store feel like less of a dramatic thing it made like it more permeable so like you would have these like glass display cases in the front of the store but it wasn't like the whole wall it would just be like some of it and so you walk in and you're looking at things and you keep looking at things and then oops Mm. you're in the store Mm. um maybe I should buy something Mm, I see yeah so this was like a really really sort of critical thing yeah. Lots of use of light and glass. He was really Ooh. into using glass and light. Uh, he loved a fluorescent light bulb. <laughs> we'll get to this later on, but he loved a drop ceiling. He loved a he fluorescent loved a light dro- bulb. Oi. <laughs> what, what a combo. What a yeah. combo. I um, mean, you know. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, you know, in, in, I guess it. an innovator, you know. Yeah, I mean, it's sort of like when you like reading Romeo and Juliet and being like, oh, my God, this is such a like uh, this is just like every story is this. But this, but it was right. the first, you know, it's right, actually first, right. But you know what I mean? Right. Like, there's, I, yeah. there's always the thing that was the first. Of um, course. But people loved it, although there was some criticism, mostly from other architects. Of course. Uh, <laughs> the complaint was that these very ultra modern stores clashed with the older architecture on fifth avenue okay so the complaint was that they didn't take the environments into account ah yes that is often a complaint that that sometimes i uh i do myself especially when buildings are really ugly yeah no it's it's (laughs) not i don't think it's like entirely unfair yeah and victor gruen was clearly of the school of uh any marketing is good marketing Uh because he was like that's great 
keep keep slamming me in the papers because that's yeah. my name out there. <laughs> <laughs> that's amazing. And uh, he divorced his wife amicably. amicably All right, I can say that word. And he married another person, Elsie Kumrick. That's not how you say her name. Uh-huh. Krumick. Krumick. Elsie Krumick. All right. K R U M M E C K. Like I said, he would be married four times over the course of his life. Um, his wives often played important roles in like his professional work. Huh. Uh, so you see like changes in his professional life follow changes in his marriages. So like Elsie was or Lizzie was an actor and mm. was really into this like socialist stuff. Elsie mm-hmm. is an interior designer. Oh, okay. And she's yep. going to work very closely with him during the yeah. marriage. Yeah, yeah. So they moved to Los Angeles, and he started his own architectural firm. And that's when he has his big, big break. He landed a huge job designing stores for Grayson's, which Grayson's uh, has two names. So on the West Coast, they're called Grayson's. And on the East Coast, they were called Robinson's. And they were a discount women's wear store. All right. All right. And they made so much money. Over <laughs> oh, gosh. Okay. Well, during World War II? During World War II. Because oh, no. Okay. Women were going to work and they oh. needed appropriate clothing to go to work. Okay. And they were like a discount store. Like they were like a Kohl's or whatever. So, got it. They, they made bank. Yeah. Yeah. During the war. Checks out. And in general, this is also just like there's a general um, large national chains are really spreading across the country. Yeah. Uh, In a way that they have not before. Right. During and just after World War II. And because these large national chains had more money to work with, they liked to use bold designs to attract attention. Mm -hmm. And to pull business away from smaller local stores that could not compete in that. Yeah. And they would use neon signs. Yes, they would. Yeah, they would. They would. That's the the only part. That's the part I like. Yeah, (laughs) I love those neon. Super dramatic and gaudy. (laughs) Of course, of course, of course. And the the neon signs were uh, were were pretty great. Definitely. And Victor Gruen definitely made some use of neon signs. Oh, I bet he did. I bet he did. (laughs) Yeah. So, and the other big social thing that's happening is the beginnings of white flight. Okay. I bring this up now because the book I read was a very good book. Um, But it didn't bring it up till the end. The white flight stuff? Yeah. And Uh I think – I understand why the author did it. Right. Because Victor Gruen did not take that into account, like, literally at all. Zero. Oh, I'm – yeah. No thought about it. Yeah. And so, like, if you're looking at things from Gruen's perspective, you wouldn't consider that. But I don't think you can talk about – the work that Victor Gruen did and not talk about. Right. Right. Like I, it's so linked because white flight is causing this huge change in what our country looks like. People are moving out to these suburbs. They're buying cars because you can't get anywhere in the suburbs without a car. Yeah. Even people who maybe want to buy in the city, it's cheaper to buy in the suburbs. So they buy in the suburbs. Yeah. Like, there's just this huge movement out of out of cities and therefore this huge movement out of shopping downtown for what became white suburbanites. Mm. Yeah. The the main demand for what he will 
be designing is because of white flight. It yes. won't really work <laughs> without it. Yeah. 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 The sort of uh, economic boost that's happening in the country is really exclusively happening for the white population. So that's sort of like having more capital to buy random stuff with. Yeah. I mean, this yeah. is just like, this was very deeply racially divided. Of course. Of course. So the car is becoming like very important in post Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and so these stores, these national chains needed parking, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. which if you think about it before World War II, you didn't really need parking. <laughs> like, because people Absolutely not. places or took yeah. like a streetcar. You need parking and you need to be able to grab attention from the road. Yes. And people are just enamored with like this huge change that's happening. Like everything felt possible. Yeah. After World War II. Yeah. And so yeah. during World War II, um, Gruen and Krumek uh, were actually tapped to help with this hypothetical post-war redesign of Syracuse, New York. Um, it was called 194X. So like 1940-something. So 194X. Uh, oh, my gosh. They were being like – they were selling this in a way that I feel like was from like 20, 2005. Well, yes. ahead of time. 24X. Yeah. Yes, very much so. That's um, so funny. <laughs> and so this was supposed to be a uh, – there was a master plan. And I okay. Put because that is what it's called. Okay. Um, and it banished cars from downtown and created a pedestrian paradise. Cute. But the planners thought that an additional so- shopping center was needed closer to where people would be living. Mm. And they thought this would help not hurt downtown, which is mm-hmm. – bonkers but whatever right so that's what Gruen was put in charge of was designing this shopping center okay and I bring up this project because we see the beginnings of what becomes his life's work in this moment Mm -hmm. Um, because when he's designing for like Robinson's and Grayson's he's doing these individual stores right right right, right, with like these wild designs like so like the one in Philadelphia has this huge wave and that's all mosaic I didn't realize that what yeah look at it closer next time you're over there it's that's so cool okay Obviously, we'll have to go and check that out. Yeah. Yes. Um, it looks terrible now, but you can tell it's mosaic. It was. And, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, the store in like somewhere in California, it had like so much neon. Like it, it's these were yeah. like just these bonkers, bonkers things. Uh, but this is where we start to see the beginning of what would define Gruen in his life. Yeah, yeah. So he didn't think of this as just a place for shopping. Remember, at the end of the day, dude's a socialist. Yeah. He wants this to be a whole community center. So his original design included shops and restaurants, but also a nursery school, a library, a theater, a clubhouse, and more stuff like that. Wow. Wow. And he's designing this in Syracuse, New York right now. Yeah. So it's – well, yeah. So it's it's for a hypothetical Syracuse, New York. Okay. All right. Okay. Hypothetical Syracuse, New York. So this was like a sort of – Look what our cities could become, and they just randomly picked Syracuse. Sure okay, and they picked Syracuse, but that is very um, funny. This was not like a real plan that was going to happen, right? And so, his concept was that the shops would subsidize the communal functions and create a central meeting mm. place for community to create community amongst the people who lived far away from downtown, which. Is this stuff we're talking about now? Like there is a um, there's an apartment 
uh, building near me that its whole concept is the that there's some of the apartments are going to subsidize lower cost apartments for long time long standing members of the community like this is yeah is, that was is an old idea it's a method yeah yeah the i mean this is such a so, i mean he's such a socialist socialist where it's like i'm going to do a terrible explanation of of what we consider a socialist but maybe it's just like what i think of as a socialist which is like not entirely divorced from capitalism. Like, you know, it's not entirely like you don't have to, and which is, you know, and again, like I'm, I'm not a socialist myself, but I vastly prefer it to whatever it is. Well, that I mean, we got sort going of like on, what we would see know. in like the Nordic countries where yeah. there's this communal concept, but it's not divorced from yeah. a capitalist structure. Capitalism still happens, but we can share the goods a lot more then yes. you know share the a lot more of the wealth like make lots of share. money yes and use that to help us yeah <laughs> uh, so the final design was edited to be significantly less grand but it just really shows where his brain was the final design did include one very important component the shoppers did not need to leave the building to move from store to store aha this is critical. This yeah. is a new. This is new concept. Yeah. And it's not going to come to fruition for a long time. So Gruen at this throughout his life, he's just like very vocal. Even when I said uh-huh. he wasn't humble, like he felt very strongly that he he had all the answers. And he starts to be very vocal in his disdain for retail strips. Uh, this is what mm. kind of the problem of the day was, was that retail strips in the suburbs were ugly, haphazard. Um, and then in addition, downtown is dying. Uh-huh. Now, mind you, uh-huh. like five years ago, he was designing for these retail strips. Right. This right. is going to be a theme. Yeah. So he, he <laughs> I'll watch out getting for this very vocal. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So 1949, he writes an article for Women's Wear Daily and claimed that no, Americans no longer enjoyed their lives and the reason for that (laughs) is because of the reason for this americans don't like their lives anymore poor retail planning oh my gosh (laughs) and he was really a man of his time wasn't he really was yeah really was a man of his time all right (laughs) so just before this 1947 he's commissioned to design the first truly suburban department store. So this isn't part of a strip. This is a standalone store. And it's for a brand I've never heard of okay. uh, called Millerons. M-I-L-L-I-R-O-N. Okay. All right. All right. And he designs this like suburban paradise. Oh, my God. So the final design merged the needs of the car and the pedestrian. Uh-huh. It had rooftop parking and not just rooftop parking but dramatic rooftop parking with these like swoopy things that you drove up to get to it (laughs) and there was this beautifully landscaped outdoor space for pedestrians like hang out in outside the store and here's a big one he designed the building to be one huge one-story building rather than the more typical for the time multi-story buildings so So, if you think about robinson's it's super it's skinny and tall yeah the Robinsons in Philly, I should specify. Right, 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 right. But you think about like a Best Buy or a yeah. Walmart. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. one story and it's just huge. That's true. 
I guess malls. No, but malls are malls often are different. multi-store. Okay. All right. So we're not there yet. We're, we're not, not there yet. yet. Okay. This okay. is a standalone department store. Uh, okay. But Got it. Now I can't get out of my head every time I see like like Walmart or Lowe's. I'm like, yep. <laughs> there it is. Victor Gruen. There um, it is. Yep. And he, like I said, still a socialist. So he right. he puts in public services on the roof. Yeah. <laughs> um, so there's yeah. a nursery. Yeah. For parents to drop off their children wow. to go shop, which is actually something we see still in Ikea today. That's and, true. Yeah. And this was not um, a completely un- unheard of thing in the United States at the time. Wanamakers, which is a department store in Philadelphia. Yep. Yep. They had a lot of community services as well, the Wanamakers in downtown. So, for example, the Wanamakers in Philly, um, it's like like right next to City Hall. It's a Macy's now. But it contains the world's largest fully functioning pipe organ. That's right. That's where that is. And (laughs) It's so weird. And they play it twice a day, free concerts. Is that was his idea? Was this his idea? This was no, that Did was Wanamaker. Oh, that was, that was Wanamaker. Oh my gosh. But the okay. point is is that like he the concept of having services in a department store wasn't like completely unheard of. Like this right. was being done other places as well. Right, right. He gets right. credit for lots of things. That's not that's not one that's of them. That's not one of them. Um, <laughs> <got it. laughs> um so then his uh marriage to Crummick starts to fail for reasons that are very familiar, I think, to some heterosexual couples I yeah. know. Yeah. Um, they had kids. <laughs> they had kids. And Crummick yeah. lost her position as a commercial partner in his eyes Aww. in favor of being a mother. Mm. So they divorce. Um, and I don't have anything about any of the subsequent two wives. Yeah. But Gruen, he's like really though high in the prize. He's really into this idea of a unified shopping center. Okay. And he just needs to find somebody who will buy it. Yeah. And so he teams up with a retailer called J.L. Hudson's in Detroit. Mm -hmm. And Detroit is seeing all the same white flight stuff that the rest of the country is seeing. Mm. And so their suburbs are growing at an absolutely, like, bonkers rate. And so he goes to the – it's actually – it's kind of a funny story. He, like, got stuck in Detroit in a snowstorm he just like knocks on jail Hudson's door and he's like hey can I tell you about my grand plans for shopping malls um (laughs) and so he convinces Hudson's that the real money was in not just building suburban stores but also buying a bunch of land around that store and then becoming like basically a real estate investor becoming a landlord to smaller stores and the Hudson's would be what we now call an anchor store. Oh, okay. And this was, so they did this. Like, yeah. this, this, he invented the idea of a Northland, of an anchor store. Northland is, is what results from that. It's an open-air shopping center, and it's conceived as a community center for surrounding homes, offices, hotels, and shops. And this is, this is the first, and it's wildly successful. Yeah. But Gruen, he's not happy to, like, just be like controlling one shopping center. This mm. man, this man, the, yeah. the audacity of this man. The audacity. He thought, <laughs> he thought that he should be put in charge of designing an entire city. 
He's he's getting pretty uh pretty out there, huh? Yes. Yeah. So he so like what I imagined as I was reading about his his ideas was there are these places that are becoming increasingly common when the concept of walkability became popular, maybe like, mm. I don't know, was that 15 years ago or something? And so in like, People realize that like, they like to walk places. Right. So <laughs> in places like, like Atlanta and like outside Washington, D.C., like in Virginia, Maryland. Yeah. Um, and I've actually even seen it in New Jersey. Like I've seen this um, in Glassboro, New Jersey. There are these like weird sections of town where yeah. you can park your car and it's walkable, but it's yeah. like you feel like you're in a dystopia because everything is identical. <laughs> like it's, uh, it's creepy. I, yeah. I hate them. I hate yeah. them. Yeah. I, but yeah. Yeah. I feel like he would be really into that based on yeah. his, reading his Like, stuff. you know, like with the cobblestone, not cobblestone streets, but like like smooth streets that are not. Yeah. And just they have on. like the sort of fake architectural details. Mm. I definitely see what you're saying. Yeah. I I do not like them. Me neither. <laughs> but Asheville, North Carolina has some places like this. Oh, of course. North Carolina, yeah, I feel like North so, Carolina has a lot of places like this. Experience. And he met a guy named Larry Smith, who was a real estate analyst. And they started working together because this is what Victor Gruen really needed. He had these like really high-flying ideas and he needed somebody who could talk real estate with yeah. these potential clients. Yeah, yeah. Because Gruen had no absolute clue. So, but, and the other thing, the Dayton family operated Dayton's department stores in uh, Minnesota. Okay. And they decide to work with him to create the first indoor mall, Southdale <gasps> in Edina? Edina? Southdale. He's very upset when he hears this. And I don't Edina? Wait, where is this in... in it's in Minnesota. What? It's in Minnesota? E-D-I-N-A. Oh, gosh. I don't know. I don't know. Adina. Sure. It's Adina, Ben. Adina. I don't know. I don't know, but this is the uh, part of the story that I do know um, a little. Yes. That's a tiny bit, but that's this it. This tends to be where when people think about Victor Gruen, it picks up. Yes. Yeah. This is what this is the part I, I remember. Yeah. So first indoor shopping mall, it has two anchor stores, opens in 1956, and it doesn't just have stores. It has a goldfish pond. What? Sculptures and a sidewalk cafe. Cool. And regarding this space, it was called the Garden Court, this area. Yeah. Frank Lloyd Wright had opinions. Good opinions or bad opinions? Oh, what did he say? Here is the quote. Here's the quote. What did he say? Frank Lloyd Wright, who I was slamming at the beginning of this episode. Yes. Said, the Garden Court has all the evils of the village street and none of its charm. (gasps) Oh, my goodness. Which, like, <laughs> I probably would have agreed with him, yeah. but rude. 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 Oh, that's funny. That yeah, is so very the, funny. Unfortunately, the community aspects of Southdale just were never built. Like, there were plans yeah. to add all this community stuff, and it just never happened. Yeah. But, as we know, the retail section was very successful. Yeah. And was copied over and over and over across the country. And... uh Victor was pretty pretty irritated that only the retail part was picked up because to him defeated the entire purpose of the thing. So what did he do that we don't see in modern malls today that was in this complex? What he well, it wasn't there. 
But yeah. what he wanted was what to he have, wanted. like, a theater, Ooh. rooms that could be used for free by community organizations. Oh, Victor. Um, nurseries, a post office, a library. His whole concept was, look, if all these people are going out to the suburbs and living on these weird little, like, quarter-acre plots, yeah, the least we can do is create a space where they can make community. Yes. And that was that was his driving factor. Like, that's what he wanted. And Minnesota is cold. So mm-hmm. a lot of the time, it's a perfect place for it because you just cannot have, for most of the year, especially back then, I don't know if they get less snow now or whatever, probably, <laughs> or more. Probably I don't more. know. Uh, yeah. But um, uh, you can't just, like, meet like as a group in the town square if there's like three feet of snow and it's like below freezing like below below zero or whatever um so this was a huge opportunity to make a town square inside (laughs) that actually actually it made sense yeah the minnesotans were primed for this concept (laughs) Um, he'd actually he'd actually tried to do this in texas Mm. except it was fully air-conditioned space and texas was like no, no. <laughs> we are not doing that. That's too expensive. Yeah. Um, but Minnesota was like, if we're going to be together for like six months of the year, uh, yeah. we need to be inside. So like, sure, indoor shopping. Let's do it. Yeah. I mean, that's so that's so sad that he really had this dream. Of course, I'm being like a mean lefty. I'm like, well, if you if you let the cap- <laughs> capitalism will always do that to you, you know. But but I you know I like to I think that he really he had a dream, you know. He had, he a, had dream. a dream. But by uh, by the mid nineteen seventies, Victor had designed over fifty shopping malls in the United States. Wow, including the Cherry Hill Mall. Yay! Was my mall <laughs> as a oh, kid? Oh my goodness! Did you enjoy the Cherry Hill Mall? Oh yeah. Oh, good. I mean, listen, it was growing up in the suburbs, growing up, it was like, it was the only place that like your parents could drop you off and just leave you for the entire day. Yeah. And you had your 20 bucks and you could get your orange Julius. Yeah. You could go to Hot Topic or just like sit in the food court and hang out with your friends. Yeah. Yeah. Without like adult supervision. What's bananas is that there are there's so much about malls that of course like was bad I'm sadly using the past tense but like you know that it relied on consumerism and capitalism and like all these horrible things but they really were they did function as town squares for kids in the suburbs for teenagers like, they for did teenagers, they, they were like, they were that was the whole like they actually served a lot like they say like we, we I feel like people talk about this as like a huge failure, but like while they were around, it was a pretty like there was a lot about them that worked. They, yeah. 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 For for the younger set for sure. Yeah. Um but this doesn't stop Victor from talking shit about shopping malls that he designed. Oh. So he starts like <laughs> Wait, because he didn't want to, because they they didn't turn out the way he wanted or something. Yes. Oh my gosh. Okay. Yeah. So he's just like he talks shit about what he called vapid shopping malls. Oh. That lacked community, and he he thought you know what really needed to happen is he needed to be put in charge 
of a whole city. <laughs> I said this man has the audacity. <laughs> they always, but this is what architects, especially of that era, that's what they do. That's what they do. That was like the thing to do is like you make it to the next bit and then you can, they'll give you a random city in Brazil or India and you can just have at it. <laughs> that is yeah, and what, I mean, this is, that, this is that an is, era of, yeah. of, quote, urban revitalization. Right, which right. We're already at 53 minutes, so I can't go too deep into it. But, but yeah, yeah. It has the, so the kids much wrapped up in right. race and politics and <laughs> yeah. And now we're look up Ed Bacon. Yeah. Look up, look up yeah. Robert Moses. Mm-hmm. Okay, mm-hmm. there we go. I got you a Google list. So <laughs> I literally did that in a video today. I was like, I I'm going to talk about 20 seconds, and then you're going to Google it. I'm not going to tell you anymore. I, I told you what to Google. You look it up. <laughs> if you are a listener of this podcast and you do not already hate Robert Moses, buckle up. Buckle um, up, <laughs> Buttercup. Yeah. Um, yeah. So he gets the city and it's not in Brazil. It's in Texas. Oh my God. Fort Worth, Texas. And he <laughs> was so confident oh, no. that he published an official announcement call- and called it City X. So he didn't say where it was, but he put his plan out into the world and called it City X. And it created okay. this big buzz like, where is City X? Texas legislature was like, mm, you want to privatize. Or you want to like pub- public ties? Yeah. Make, uh, um, Unprivate? Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Parking <laughs> and handing lots of authority over to city government for zoning uh-huh. Uh-huh. and uh-huh. planning and yeah. having requirements for how buildings are built. Yeah. And the legislature is like, this is Texas, sir. Yeah. Like, this is the Wendy's. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Quite literally, the Wendy's of America. Like this we are is not Wendy's. doing that. This is Texas. That will not work. Yeah. So up next, Kala- Kalamazoo, Michigan. Okay. Which is actually one of the colleges I considered applying to. I did not. Oh my gosh. Age. But okay. Kalamazoo, Michigan, did take Gruen up on his ideas, but forced him to boil them down to the simplest possible concept, mm. which was a downtown pedestrian shopping mall. Okay. Yeah. Which we yeah. have one of these in Philadelphia. Yeah. It used to be called the Galleria. It's now called the Fashion District. Um, Stupid Fashion District. It's it's a lot. It's not um, a pedestrian paradise. <laughs> no. Um, it's just like a weird, sad, empty mall. It is very weird. That I they don't like. arrest children in. Yeah. Um, so it's very creepy. It's very yeah. creepy and weird. And no, I don't think anybody likes it. I'm just going to say that. I'm going to say nobody likes it. We don't like it. No, it's, I, it's, it's gross. Yeah. Um, but uh, people liked this mall. <laughs> so okay. Good. Kalamazoo basically takes his plan and they, <laughs> they didn't hire him to like run the project. He was pissed. No. Like he wanted to micromanage his project. And they no. were like, thanks for the idea. Here's some money for the idea. Toodles. Oh my um, gosh. That is so tragic. They... They took his idea and they ran with it. Hold on. My phone is ringing for no reason. Um, I'll, hold on one second. Yeah. So, um, Gruen's mad, but yeah. 1959, the Burdick Mall 
opens up in Kalamazoo. It takes up two blocks of downtown, and everybody loves it. It's great. Uh-huh. Good. Everybody Good. loves it. Oh, great. And as a result, Gruen is tapped for many similar projects across the country and was even tapped for a project designing a section of Beirut in Lebanon. Wow. Yeah. 1963, he wrote a book called The Heart of Our Cities, where he <laughs> he slammed everything he saw as an American evil. The oh obsession gosh. with the car, suburban wastelands, which he had had a hand in building, greedy developers <laughs> who he worked with, right. blind government bureaucrats, and pompous architects. Oh, Victor. He definitely was not a pompous architect. Victor, Victor, <laughs> Victor, Victor. People are always, okay, I'll, I'm going to start to say, I feel like a lot of people talk about like, you know, it was such a tragedy. What happened to Victor Gruen? It's like, he was a part of this. Like he was a part oh, of yeah. his own undoing. <laughs> like, like it didn't need to be like this. <laughs> I think it is a shame that his vision for creating community in suburbia did not happen. Of course. And we, he's fine. He's, oh yeah, he's fine. He's fine. He's fine. And like a lot of the stuff that he designs like he designed it like yes yeah yes. he could have said no you know he could have said no I don't I'm not doing it he was like no he's like I'm gonna do it yeah yeah and, and, and I'll give me a whole city I'll do it more <laughs> so 1968 he makes a very weird move okay he goes back to Vienna wow which is basically unheard of yeah for Austrian Jews to do at that time yeah his children were asked about this like why they thought he did this sorry I have like my wife and I get new wedding rings every year and the ones I picked uh-huh. this year keep getting caught on things oh no and it's stuck oh my to gosh. my shirt um okay so <laughs> okay so his kids said that they thought that he had really held up this mental image of his ideal Vienna and didn't mm. really like process that that wasn't the actual like actual Vienna that existed in in post because he had left it so long ago he had left right and most but like most Jews who left during the Anschluss were like that sucked guys yeah but he uh I guess thought that was just the aberration yeah so he moves back to Vienna and sorry to be a downer but I have to read this story okay okay that's actually this thing that fell out. This I bought this book used because I buy all my books used. Um, it's like a weird recipe. Ah! Something called squash casserole, even for non-squash lovers. <laughs> and <laughs> it is unhinged, Isa. I I intend to make it at some point. I keep putting it off because I don't think I'm going to like it. <laughs> I think it is upsetting sounding. <laughs> goodness i need to okay read me the sad thing first and then um at some point yeah, i want to know, know. That's, that's what we're gonna do so i'll read yeah. the sad thing and then okay. we'll lift our spirits by reading okay this, this, uh, okay sounds good sounds good lifting, li- reading this this bizarre recipe okay i'm just gonna sh- read straight from the book this okay. is a uh, mall maker by um m jeffrey m jeffrey hardwick nice his daughter-in-law vividly recalled what happened after they left the office When they walked into the chilly Viennese evening, a, quote, shiny black Mercedes limousine glided to an abrupt halt at the curb in front of us. A man greeted Gruen, welcoming him back to Vienna. 
quote, Gruen let out a piercing cry. The blood had drained from his face. She recalled the man had been a Nazi and had taken over Gruen's architectural firm in 1938. Oh, my God. So distraught was Gruen that his family canceled their dinner plans. As we sped away, his daughter-in-law recalled, I turned to give Gruen a last look as he leaned weeping alone. What fascinates me about this story is that this guy stopped and, like, welcomed Gruen back. Yeah, that's – yeah, that's – um, that's crazy. I – literally, this is what I am in the midst of the, – the, the depressing thing that I'm in the midst of studying right now um, is the, the, the fact that the people that forced Jews to give up all of their businesses and possessions um, – still have all that stuff <laughs> yeah they do. Uh, yeah uh and those businesses and that's what volkswagen is and that's what bmw is and that's what you know a lot of these like there's so many companies that were just forced out of the hands of jews or were just they just made money through billions of dollars through the holocaust in general and like just did not get uh punished for it at all pretty much like a couple some of them got like a couple years in prison maybe but then after that like we're allowed to go back to business and do everything that they once did so many very billions. few of them have yeah. even have even come forward like yeah, yeah. um no. i know this is this is a, a touchy subject amongst american jews but einstein bagels we may not we may not think that that the parent company that owns einstein bagels was they they that that was like their story um and a lot of people think they didn't do enough, mm. but they did. So it wasn't known like in the general public and the mm. family was doing some like research and they were like, Oh shit. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so they came forward and said, we found this. Wow. And they donated some money to some Jewish yeah. something, something. Yeah. yeah. And a lot of people said it wasn't enough money. It wasn't enough. And I think they are entitled to their opinions. Yeah. Um, but that's a whole lot more than a lot of places do. Yeah, it um, is a whole lot more. Like most people wait, they wait for people, like for someone else to find out. Like they will not preemptively right. do it. And then um, I yeah. don't eat Einstein bagels, but not because they used to be Nazis. Yeah, it's because I like, don't eat them because they're bad bagels. They're bad bagels. Um, right. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, I want to finish this ad stuff so that I can yeah. read this recipe and we can yes, get our please. Up. Yes, please. So in 1978, Gruen gave a speech in London where he disavowed shopping malls. Oh my gosh. And said that they quote <sighs> bastardized his ideas. And hey. he said he said these words. These words came out of this man's mouth. Uh-huh. Quote, I refuse to pay alimony for those bastard developments. They destroyed our cities. End quote. And then he died on Valentine's Day in 1980. <laughs> Victor Gruen. Victor Gruen. Oh, my goodness. That is so... You did this, dude. You did this. You did this. <laughs> I just... I feel like I know him. Like, not him specifically, but I feel like I have met this person. Yeah. Yeah. So many times. Yeah. <sighs> Gosh. That is so um, fucking funny. I know. I appreciate him in a way. Yeah. Um, I appreciate, I feel like I understand who he is a little bit better, but I also feel like there's a lot of like architecture, like socialist bros who like take him at his word and are like, yeah, what a tragedy. Um, and, and, and you know, 
There's tragic I mean, elements. It was to a it. tragedy. It was but a tragedy. Not for the reasons they think. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so tell me, what do you do? How do you make a squash casserole that even non squash lovers will love? Okay. Um, first of all, I'm going to show, show you this, which I know this doesn't do anything for people on the podcast, but I'll put it on TikTok or something. It's printed Oh my so gosh. Big. This is so funny. Okay. All right. All right. Great. One and a half pounds yellow squash. Cook, drain, and mash. We are off to a great start. Cook, already. drain, mash. Okay. Yeah. So mash squash. I have never in my life mashed a squash. No. Um, one stick of melted butter. One eight-ounce package of Pepperidge Farm herb stuffing. Okay. One can, one can, no, just kidding. One cup sour cream. Okay. One can cream of chicken soup. Okay. One onion, finely chopped. One onion, finely chopped. Four carrots, grated. Four carrots. And one two-ounce jar of pimentos, chopped. No! (laughs) Take them out! Take them out! (laughs) <laughs> Combine butter and stuffing. Line large flat casserole with half of the pepperidge mix. To the squash, add sour cream, soup, onion, carrots, pimentos, and a quarter of the stuffing mix. Stir and mix well. Spread over mixed lining casserole. Cover with remaining buttered stuffing mix. Oh, my God. Bake, <laughs> bake at 350 degrees for 30 minutes until warm and brown. May be made day before or frozen and baked before serving. This is a special favorite for holiday meals with my family. Serves 10 to 12. That is so amazing. This, this, okay, I don't, I can't tell what type, what subtype of American this is, but this is the most American thing in the entire fucking world. Is this Midwestern American? Is it suburb American? Is it, is it like which part of the country? Because like. What's amazing, here's why this is pretty great, is that it goes really well with the history of shopping malls in America. It really does. <laughs> Would you I like to expand on that, Issa? <laughs> I think I, I, just only because of, I always have such complicated feelings about it, but like there is, I feel like it's fun to at least recognize the fact that like even like the most boring ass white Americans you can think of have like anybody, everybody in the world has a culture. Everybody in the world has a culture. Yes. And sometimes those color cultures are more colorful and sometimes they are a lot less. And, but, but, but. And sometimes they're putting pimentos in mashed squash. <laughs> so the, there is a certain type of American culture that if you look at the details of it, it's less bland than you think. It's just has a lot of butter and sugar yep. And it there's more there's more subtleties to it than you think, and I think the shopping mall neon signs and uh, all types of casseroles are all parts of that. I I like that. I think that's a lovely wrap up. Yeah, <laughs> I am planning on making this. I have purchased for the first and probably only time in my life a jar of pimentos. Oh my um, gosh! Okay, <laughs> I need to know how this turns out. Yeah, no, we'll 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 have you all over for Shabbos dinner, and we'll have squash casserole for non-squash lovers. I never <laughs> thought of squash as a thing you have to convince people to like. Like it's such right. a it's a benign vegetable. It's not. I this is not a squash. A... <laughs> this is so funny. Well, I can't wait to try it. Yes. Um, 
Yes. Okay. So uh, let me pull up. I didn't. I'm not prepared for the end. Hang on. While I'm pulling this up, I'm going to tell you I fed the cats early so that they wouldn't be bothering me. I did too. I fed Pika early because he was, I got home at five, like 5.50. He was screaming and I knew that wasn't going to work. But they still, they still, like I still made them wait like half an hour. Yeah. Um, And they started bringing their toys over to their, to their bowls. Like, look, I hunted this. (laughs) Feed me. (laughs) This should be good enough. Feed me. (laughs) They've taken to hunting random, like, socks that have been previously lost right. um, in the basement. Like, it's it's not great. That's okay, very funny. So, here we go. Thank you so much for listening to D-Listers of History. If you enjoyed yourself, be sure to subscribe and drop us a review on whatever platform you listen on. A huge thank you to April Keys for the use of the song Misfit from her album Mountain View. You can find her on all the various social media platforms. You can find us on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok at D-Listers of History, no hyphens. Big shout out to the folks supporting us on Patreon, like Alex. Yay! Uh, Yay, Alex. If you want to support us and get access to all sorts of exclusive content, become a patron of this program. Uh, Before this, I recorded myself doing a dramatic reading of an Alexander Hamilton letter. Let me tell you, we have a fun time over there at Patreon. Oh, excellent. Excellent. Um, Also, lots of very good stickers. Um, Yes, stickers. All this and more can be found on our website, delistersofhistory.com. Again, no hyphens. Just smush it together. Hi, this is Fago the Future. I forgot to say that our next episode is coming out July 17th. Okay, take it away, Pacific. Uh, and now for an episode relevant audio drop. Architecture as a creative expression will die if it cannot create conditions within which it can be meaningful. There's little sense in exhibiting paintings in a room that is pitch dark would be rather foolish for a virtuoso to play a violin solo on the runway of a jet airport. There's just this little sense in placing brilliantly designed buildings into an atmosphere of danger, noise and fumes which an unworkable, hostile environment creates.